Well, good morning. It's a pleasure to see each one of you. Please take your Bible and let's go over to the book of Psalms. We're in Psalm chapter 4. We're continuing our series on Psalms, Certain Truths for Uncertain Times. And the title of our message today from Psalm 4 is Confidence When You're Falsely Accused. Confidence when you're falsely accused. I think every one of us at some particular point in our life understands and knows how it feels to be um, unjustly accused for something that you did not do. Psalm 3 and Psalm 4 are very, very closely linked. Uh, There are some Bible scholars who believe that Absalom's insurrection referred to in Psalm 3, as we talked about in our last message, is the same context of Psalm 4. Now, it's difficult to say that with absolute certainty, but the very fact that the two psalms are purposely placed together in the Psalter does give some reason to consider this to be true, as well as some of the content that's a part of Psalm 4, very similar to that of Psalm 3. Certainly, the occasion of Psalm 3 involved some very strong false accusations against King David concerning his worthiness to continue as the king of Israel. And Absalom promoted those false accusations in order to undermine David's credibility in the eyes of the average Israelite. Psalm 4 then appears to pick up with that very same problem. What is a false accusation? Well, a false accusation is a claim or an allegation of wrongdoing that is untrue and or otherwise unsupported by facts. False accusations are also known as groundless accusations, unfounded accusations, or false allegations or false claims. Take a look at Psalm 4 and follow along as we read through the psalm as a whole. The subtitle of the psalm is for the choir director with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Verse 1 says, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O sons of man, how long will my glory become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and seek falsehood? But know that Yahweh has set apart the Holy One for Himself. Yahweh hears when I call to Him. Tremble and do not sin. Ponder in your heart upon your bed and be still. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in Yahweh. Many are saying, who will show us good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Yahweh. You have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, all Yahweh, make me to abide in safety. It's very, very painful when someone accuses you of something evil and wrong, and you know that you're innocent. You know it. The injustice behind the accusation bites. There's a tendency in, the hu- in our human nature to instantly become angry. Your blood pressure goes through the roof, and it makes it worse even 
when everybody seems to agree with your accuser. David is the one falsely accused in Psalm 4. Understanding how he responds to false accusation will help you to know how to respond as well when you are falsely accused. How should you handle the false accusations of wrongdoing? Now, the natural tendency of the human heart is to become very angry, to lash out, go on the attack, avenge these false claims, correct the injustice of it all. But that is not the righteous reaction of a believer. That's not what godly people do. So the question is, how do you respond? Take your Bible for a moment. Let's go over to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. We're actually going to come back here a little bit later. But 1 Peter was written to Christians there in the first century that were undergoing all kinds of false accusations. And those false accusations actually had their genesis with the emperor Nero. Nero was the one who had falsely accused the Christians of um, burning Rome. Actually, burning Rome, when in reality, they had not done that. Peter is writing here in 1 Peter chapter 2, and he is basically reminding the Christians here on the danger that that poses them. Not so much physical danger, but danger in terms of sinfulness. In verse 1, he says, Therefore, laying aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of God, and coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The implication is all these people who are being falsely accused are fully and completely accepted by God because of what Jesus Christ had done. And that would include you and me if you understand what it means to have full and complete faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. That would include both of us. Now, the Bible has all kinds of plenty of false examples, I should say, of betrayal and false allegations. For example, in 1 Kings chapter 21, verses 8 through 13, Jezebel concocts a scheme against Naboth in order to acquire his luscious vineyard for her husband, husband Ahab. And as a result of that, she makes false allegations against Naboth, and it ends actually in murder. She has him put to death, and she becomes infamous, and her name becomes infamous. Even to this day, when somebody betrays someone else, sometimes you refer to that person, especially if she's a female, as a Jezebel. Such a person false accusations, and these false accusations had enough bite in order to send Naboth to his death. Or if you go to the book of Esther, Esther's chapter 5, all the way into chapter 6, you can find out this. The, this is the folly of making a false accusation really is illustrated in the book of Esther. A man by the name of Haman 
a nobleman in the court of King Assuerus, devised a plot to frame a Jew by the name of Mordecai and have him hanged on the gallows. Haman sought to ensure Mordecai's death by means of false accusations. And Haman devised this plot because he hated Jews and he especially hated Mordecai because Haman was jealous uh, of a favor that Mordecai had received from the king. But Haman's plot was found out and the punishment for Haman's treachery, ironically, in almost poetic justice, he was hung on the very gallows that he had constructed for Mordecai. There's poetic justice. And then you go to the New Testament in Matthew chapter 26, verses 59 through 61, where the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin tried to obtain false testimony against Jesus Christ. You can see the parallel of that account in Mark 14, verses 55 through 59. And then in Matthew 28, verses 12 through 15, the elders of the city of Jerusalem conspired together to pay the Roman soldiers who had been guarding the tomb of Jesus to give false testimony by saying his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were sleeping. So they give false testimony about the disciples of Jesus Christ, even though they had done nothing wrong and they had not done anything even close to what they are accused of. In the book of Acts, chapter 6, verses 11 through 15, some members of the Jewish Sanhedrin stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and put forth a false witness against Stephen, saying, this man never ceases speaking words against this holy place and the law For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and after the customs which Moses handed down to us or and alter the customs that Moses handed down to us. So there's a false accusation they brought against Stephen. Where did that end? That ended up in Stephen being stoned to death. And of course, Absalom, if you recall from what we talked about last week in Psalm Three, falsely accuses his father, King David, of not listening to the legitimate concerns of the people by saying in 2 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 3, it says, then Absalom will say to him, that is uh, a man who has brought a criminal complaint against another man, see, your words are good and right, but no man listens to you on the part of the king. So, What is Absalom doing? He's really accusing his father, King David, of negligence, of not paying attention to the genuine concerns that people are bringing there into the courts of Israel. Just as David had not listened to Absalom's complaint against his half-brother Amon for raping Tamar, Absalom now is accusing David of not listening to the people of Israel. And this is the way in which he ends up winning the entire country of Israel onto his side. Now, listen, wicked people will always be planning to persecute the righteous by raising up unfounded accusations against them. Don't act like you're surprised if these things happen to you. Why is that the case? Well, Jesus answers this by saying in John 15, verses 18 and 19, he says, if the world hates you, 
you know that it has hated me before it hated you. You were of the world. And the world would love, or if you were of the world, he says, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Now, why is it that people make false accusations or give false testimony? Sometimes it is a revenge tactic. Sometimes it's a power play. Sometimes it's done for personal gain or financial gain. Any false testimony or false accusation is a lie and a violation of the ninth commandment. In Exodus chapter 20 and verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Clear violation of the commandment. Psalm 4, then, is the first psalm in the Psalter uh, that mentions for the choir director with strings and instruments, a psalm of David. It's possible that David put this psalm to music and played it on his harp. There are many later liturgies that have put these same words to music. Um, these and others have attempted in more modern times to put this psalm to music as well, but it's not uncommon, and it wasn't uncommon in ancient Israel to take something as profound as Psalm 4 and to put it to music so that people would remember it. Some Bible scholars see this as a chiastic psalm, simply meaning that the literary arrangement of the psalm follows kind of a ring composition to it, where the psalm begins is the same place where it ends. And the second idea of the psalm corresponds to the second to the last idea. The third idea of the psalm corresponds to the third to the last idea, and so on. And that's very possible. But the center of that is the key thing to the psalm. So this is very possible in Psalm 4. And it demonstrates a very complex literary composition, probably to highlight what is said, particularly in verse 3. Verse 3 says, But know that Yahweh is set apart the Holy One for Himself. Yahweh hears when I call to Him. So let's take a look at this particular psalm, and let's see what this psalm has to say in regards to false accusations. What does this psalm have to say? What kind of confidence can you have when you are falsely accused? That's key. So first of all, in verse 1, David calls on God in the midst of his distress. He calls upon him. In verse 1, David here <clears throat> begins with a brief petition to God. The essence of a prayer to God is, answer me. <clears throat> so one of the first things that David does is to turn to God when he's falsely accused. That's really important for you to remember. One of the first things he does is turn to God when he is falsely accused. He cries out for an answer from God. Prayer oftentimes is the last thing that people think about when they've been wrong. Instead, they are quick to defend themselves or assert their innocence. However, David intuitively knew that his real defense when falsely accused was not going to come from his own self-defense. It was going to come from God. That's where his defense was going to come from. His integrity would be 
proved genuine by God himself. Defending his own integrity would carry much weight, or not much weight at all, I should say. Only God's affirmation would really restore his reputation. So there are two observations you need to see in verse 1. The first is that David refers to God as my righteousness, as my righteousness. God is David's ruler. In this opening petition, David refers to Elohim, very deliberate word for God. It's a broad name for God, emphasizing his power, his reign over the universe and the heavens. And by evoking Elohim, David now is acknowledging that God alone is in control of all the events of his life as he controls everything else in the universe. He is in control as he controls everything else. So David acknowledges right at the outset his absolute full dependence and complete trust in Elohim, in God himself. The second thing is God is David's resource. God is David's resource. David calls out for God to answer him. He says, answer me in verse one. When I call, O God, Elohim of my righteousness. Now, this is a direct address to God, and David states it in the most boldest way. In the Hebrew language, it's actually stated in the imperative form. So, in essence, he is saying in an imperative and very forceful context, Answer me, Lord. God alone is David's only resource when false accusations mount up from his accusers. David knows that God knows him through and through, and he will provide the credible response to his accusers. While false accusations were flying David's way, he did not attempt any self-defense or uh, seek some kind of human character reference. He turned to his only resource, and that was to Elohim. God then also is David's righteousness. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. He says in verse 1, the emphasis is upon the righteousness that God has given David. It means that God maintains or vindicates David's righteous claims against those who falsely testify against him. It is a relational assertion here. God of my right. In essence, he's saying, God, who is fully righteous, champions the rights of his people. Remember that. Remember that in your life. God, who is absolutely righteous, he is the one who champions your rights. Your rights. And David understood this. This is what he is asserting here. If David is innocent of these accusations, then above all, God will not just know of his innocence, He will defend David's innocence, and David's God defends his own against false accusations. Now, when you are falsely accused, you've got to remember that David's God is your God. He will rise to your defense. Whether or not you know it, you are being falsely accused before God by Satan on a daily basis. And listen to what the Apostle John says in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10. 
where it says, then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. You get this understanding that if that is going on with Satan before God constantly accusing you, if that's the case, then it's very, very obvious that the accusations that we face on a human or an earthly level is just the natural outgrowth of that as well. So, hmm, Satan can no longer bring an accusation against you because Christ's righteousness has been imputed to you. A clear conscience laughs at false accusations. It laughs at false accusations. This is really key. The vicarious atonement of Christ pays the debt of the believer's sin, satisfies divine justice on his behalf, and renders it impossible for God to be just and yet to justify him, Romans 3.26. The imputed righteousness of Christ gives the believer the adoption of children, Galatians 4.5, and the title to eternal life. If that's the case, then Satan has no grounds whatsoever to make any kind of accusation against you. None. He has none. Because all of your righteousness has been, does not come from you. It comes from Jesus Christ, which has been imputed to you. Earlier in our worship here in Join Heirs, we sung that song uh, that talks about the hope of my righteousness is not in me, but it is in you. The hope of my right, that's imputed righteousness. It's not, our hope is not in us. Now, this is so important. I want you to see this, this imputed righteousness, because grab your Bible, let's go over to Romans chapter 3, and we're going to drop in in verse 21. Romans chapter 3, verse 21, where he says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith for a demonstration of his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now you claim that you have faith in Jesus. If that's the case, then his righteousness has been imputed to you and no one has any standing in order to bring any kind of false accusation, especially Satan, as he attempts to do every day. And then others that are a part of his wickedness. If you go then, I close my Bible too quickly. If you go back to Romans chapter five, then and verse 19, he says, for through the one 
man's disobedience, the many were appointed sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, that's Christ's righteousness there, the many will be appointed righteous. There is that imputed righteousness. You want to check on this more fully, go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 30 and 31. You can see that even more clearly. Now, let's look at the second half of verse 1. Let's go back to Psalm 4. Second half of verse 1 says this. He says, you have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer and hear my prayer. So the Lord is not only the God of his righteousness, but the Lord also is the God of David's relief. Not only does David provide justification or does God provide justification for David's innocence, but he is also David's relief when the awful, unfounded accusations are hurled at him. God is David's release. Now look at the phrase, you have relieved me in my distress. The Hebrew wording here is much more picturesque. It means you have made room for me in my distress. Literally, in tightness, you have given me space. I like that. In tightness, you have given me space. So in addition to David basing his plea on God's righteousness for him, he calls, he recalls how God has set him free from distress before. Like we discussed in Psalm 3, David's enemies had surrounded him, hemmed him in. Uh, they were close to him. He didn't have any place where he could move. His distress was that he was caught in this very, very tight spot. But God now restores him by opening space. God relieves his distress by giving him space. David was beginning to feel claustrophobic. Uh, caught in a room with walls closing in and with no way out. But his God provides for his relief from the captivity and close confinement. All of my life, I don't think I've ever been claustrophobic until they stuck me inside of an MRI machine <laughs> and told me to lay perfectly skill still for 30 minutes or more. What? Are you kidding me? That thing's right around my head. Yeah, and then you start going, <sighs> it feels like the walls are closing in on you when those kind of things happen. This is exactly the way David felt. And David now is provided release. In other words, he's given more room in tightness. You have given me space is the idea. The second thing here is that God is David's redeemer as well. Verse one here, second half, verse one, David says, be gracious to me. And the word that David uses here to show his graciousness means um, kindness, favorable treatment that is undeserved. Now, this is the second time in the verse that David uses an imperative word. God did not have to release David from his tight distress, but David pleads for God to show him favor. And in his helpless state, David needed a redeemer and thereby defend him against these false accusations that were coming his way. So when you are accused falsely, you know clearly that even though what they are accusing you of doing is wrong, 
you also realize that there are many other things where you were in the wrong and you never got caught, right? You were in the wrong, but you never got caught. Now you're being falsely accused. This feels horrible. Imagine the injustice of this. All right. David understood that even if he was innocent of what his enemies were saying, he still needed God's undeserved grace, even though that were the case, in order to save him. There's plenty of other things that he could have, could be accused of that were probably true. And you'll always need to cry out to God for his grace, even though in the immediate situation, you know you're innocent, even though that's the case. Thirdly, God is David's reliance as well. For the third time, David uses an imperative voice, three times in one verse now, addressing God to hear his prayer. It is the imperative that God hears. And now this expression really is an anthropomorphism. It's not as if God has closed his literal hearing to David's prayer. God knows and he hears all prayers. As Proverbs 5.21 says, for the ways of a man are before the eyes of, the, of Yahweh and he watches all of his tracks. The meaning that David wishes to convey is that God will answer his prayer. To fully hear means that God will be inclined to listen to his distress and answer it. And David knows he can rely upon God to answer him in his distress. So verse one contains all of David's short petition to God Almighty. It contains three very powerful imperatives. He needs to step in and give him some distance between himself and his distress. He needs more room. He needs God to provide redemptive grace. God is the only one who can be righteous and, re and bring relief. And now the tone of the psalm changes from a prayer petition to a very, very powerful warning. Very, very powerful warning, calling on enemies to do no wrong. This is kind of interesting. Um, this is where David turns to address his enemies. If God was going to honor his prayer in verse 1, then David realized that his enemies would be in trouble. His prayer indicates that he is in trouble and needs help from God, but if his prayer is answered... It is his enemies who will be in trouble because of God coming to his defense and his aid. So he has three very powerful warnings for his enemies. The first one is, it's a warning about don't lie. Don't lie. It's a warning about lying. The second one, God has set him apart. And the third one is, do not sin. So let's take a look at these three real quickly. There are three significant accusations that David now makes against his accusers. This is where he turns tables on them. Their accusations against David reveal significant character flaws in them. And they think that David's in trouble, but David says that lying puts them in the center of trouble. Look at verse 2. David addresses them by saying, O sons of men. Now, I know that's the way the New American Standard translates it, and that's even the way in which the Legacy Standard Bible translates. The word men is in plural. Do you see that? All right. Actually, that's not true in the Hebrew language. It's sons of man, singular. That's what it is. 
The word for man is singular, not plural. Why is that important? Because if they are sons of one man, often that is a reference to an elite class. Back in ancient times, to say sons of man was a reference to elite people. Elite people. Um, It can indicate that they were men who were elite, influential, highly distinguished. As uh, Psalm 49 and verse 2 says, Psalm 62 verse 9 uses the same kind of terminology. These men were very important and powerful men who were enemies of David. Some evil-motivated people will always look for ways to spread false testimony. In Psalm 35 and verse 10, David speaks of those who cause strife and conflicts by making false accusations, for they do not speak peace, but they devise deceitful words against those who are quiet in the land. Wow. They devise deceitful words against those who are quiet in the land. And then early in his ministry, Jesus warned his disciples by saying, blessed are you, Matthew 5, 11, when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. So this is something that has been a problem throughout human history from the very beginning, going way back. David's enemies were trying to ruin his honor. David says in poetic fashion, how long will my glory become a reproach? Now that refers to David's personal honor. How long will my honor suffer shame, he is saying. As a king, he had a certain glory, a certain dignity, a certain honor. And they were trying to reproach him and ruin him. So this question for his enemies shows his lament and sorrow over the fact that they were publicly trying or attempting to shame David. Their attack upon him was to mock and disgrace his honor. This certainly fits with what Absalom was attempting to do to David in 2 Samuel chapter 15, verses 3 through 6. Absalom questioned the judgment and the justice of David, especially concerning his son Ammon's rape of Tamar and David's corresponding lack of response for over two years while Absalom waited for David to respond? Wow. Um, And many in Israel joined Absalom's course by, in a sense, beguiling David's integrity. Secondly, David's enemies love empty words. They love empty words. Now, the Legacy Standard Bible translates, how long will you love what is worthless? Hebrew term here for worthless means empty things, like words that have no advantage or no benefit. It's stated in the imperfect tense, implying that this type of chatter could go on indefinitely, just in a continuous way. How long will you love just continually rattling on worthless words? How long will you do that? Empty words are destructive, and they're intended to attack personal character. The words that David's enemies were using had no truth behind them, and yet they loved using them. Uh, This reinforced their commitment to perpetuating lies about him, thinking that there would be somehow no consequence for this. Psalm 31 and verse 18 says this, 
it says, let the lying lips be mute, which speak arrogantly against the righteous with lofty pride and contempt. Lofty pride and contempt. This is exactly what his enemies were doing. They were offering up just a plethora of empty, worthless words. Third, David's enemies seek after lies, he says. They seek after lies. The end of verse 2 goes further and says, they seek falsehood. So David's wording is deliberate here. His enemies were not inadvertently lying. They were deliberately seeking out lies that they could use against David. They were seeking fabricated stories. They were trying to throw all kinds of mud at David just to see if anything would stick. It didn't matter to them whether the tales had any grain of truth in them or not. If it was plausible, even though they knew it was false, they were trying to use these lies to bring him down. And this is where your enemies sometimes can become ruthless. The ends of their mind justify the ends, in this case, in their mind, justify the means. They think that the ultimate ends is good, that is to remove David as king, even if it means they have to fabricate the story. William Shakespeare makes a statement like this, I doubt not then, but innocence shall make false accusations blush and tyranny tremble at patience. So David knows what they are doing, that, and that's why he immediately says what he says then in verse 3, which moves us to verse 3, a warning that Yahweh has set him apart. He says, but know that Yahweh set apart the Holy One for himself. Yahweh hears when I call him. Verse 3 is a solemn notice to his enemies. Not only are their allegations false and full of lies, but they are the ones who are treading on dangerous ground. David becomes, the very, per- becomes very personal because he changes his reference to God as Elohim to the personal covenant name of Yahweh. You see the change there in verse 3. And by doing so, he's invoking the promises of the Mosaic covenant to protect obedient saints. He's doing that. So David knows that Yahweh has has marked out the godly. He is completely aware of the fact that it was Yahweh who chose him and that Yahweh had not finished with him being the king of Israel. Yahweh's protection of David could mean the destruction of his enemies. And in fact, the Hebrew word for godly there is describing those who are characterized as people who have a loyal love for the God of Israel. Yahweh has marked out the godly for himself, and he will never surrender them to the wicked. Isn't that what the final verse of Psalm 23 and verse 6, you know Psalm 23, where it says, Surely goodness and loving kindness will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David's life was marked out. It was protected by the covenant-keeping Lord God of Israel. And that should serve as a warning to his enemies. What they were intending to do to him could spell their own destruction. You take a look at our own pastor. Because of the many stands in which he has taken, he has come under all kinds of ungodly, false accusations from prominent people around the country. Ungodly things. And yet, and we never hear him responding 
and retaliation. Why? Because he ultimately trusts the God of glory. He ultimately trusts that God will defend him. David knows that Yahweh has marked out the godly. Secondly, David knows this. David knows that Yahweh will protect him. At the end of verse 3, he says that, Yahweh hears when I call. Because David knows that he has a special relationship with Yahweh, he knows that Yahweh will hear his prayer. This is proof that he is a man who is set apart. To hear his prayer means that Yahweh will respond and protect him and his character from false accusations that are really meant to destroy him. This is the, this is the center of this chiasm. It is the, the point of this poetical structure. Yahweh hears the prayers of those he has chosen and set apart. The same is true as well for the New Testament Christian. If you go back to 1 Peter chapter 2 again, and I said we were going to come back here to this passage. Let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 2. Pick up in verse 9. Notice what Peter says to the early Christians who were undergoing all kinds of false testimony, unjust allegations thrown at them. He says in verse 9, but you are a chosen family, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Behold, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against your soul. What is that fleshly lust? has nothing to do with sexual lust. has everything to do with anger and retaliation about being falsely accused. That's fleshly lust. Anger and retaliation against being falsely accused. But he says, those fleshly lusts wage war against your soul, verse 12, by keeping your conduct excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may be because of your good works, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. There you go. There, And that's exactly what David sets an example of here in the sense that he's concerned about the welfare of his enemies who are throwing all these accusations at him because he knows that they're in trouble. They think David's in trouble. David knows they're in trouble because they're siding on the side of lies. He knows that. Yahweh will always protect his people, especially when wicked men bring false testimony against them. David warns his enemies that God would watch out for them. Now that brings us to verses 4 and 5, warning not to sin. David now continues his direct address to his adversaries in verses 4 and 5, and one of the chief problems concerning his enemies was their lack of fear of Yahweh. Notice how in verses 4 and 5, it demonstrates that David has no anger or animosity against his adversaries. In fact, he cares for them, and he hopes that they will turn their lives around. Look at three admonitions he gives them. Um, This is for their benefit and their welfare. David admonishes his adversaries to fear Yahweh. That's the first part of verse 4. Tremble and do not sin. Despite their attempts to slander and discredit David, he wants his adversaries to repent and fear Yahweh. He wants them to be shaken to the core and halt their sinful attitudes and actions. They were to tremble and do not sin. This is like 
what David's son Solomon says as he concludes the book of Ecclesiastes. He says in Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14, he says, the end of the matter, all that has been heard, fear God, keep his commandments, because this is the end of the matter for all mankind. For God will bring every work to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether good or evil. So by attacking God's anointed, they show that they have no fear of the Lord. They have no fear of the Lord. Secondly, David admonishes his adversaries to think long and deep. They were supposed to think quietly about their own sins with sober reflection and turn from their sinful ways. He says, ponder in your heart upon your bed and be still. Why in their bed at night? Because it had to be a time of silent personal reflection. Without the distractions of people and the affairs of life, they needed to consider these things in their heart through deep contemplation. We know from sleep studies that when a person is falling asleep, that pre-hypnagogic state, when a person is drowsy, is one of the most creative times of mental activity in the, during your whole day. Has that ever happened to you? Where you're just falling asleep and you've been working with a problem all day long and you're just starting to fall asleep and all of a sudden, oh, I know what the answer to that is. All right? All of a sudden, it wakes you up. That's that pre-hypnagogic state where you're really drowsy, and all of a sudden, you become immensely creative at that particular point. David says, lay down in your bed, think about this, and all of a sudden, new options are going to open up to you, is the idea. So often, problems that plague a person throughout the day will suddenly be resolved because you're thinking in a more creative way without limitations. We tend to look at problems from a more creative perspective. And David wants his enemies to look at, this, look at this problem from a different perspective as well. He's calling on them to change and be still. Thirdly, David admonishes his adversaries to offer sacrifices and trust. In verse 5, he says this, offer sacrifices of righteousness and trust in Yahweh. Now, the meditation of verse 4 is supposed to result in the actions and attitudes of verse 5. One is connected vitally to the other. The priority is to trust Yahweh. If you're willing to trust Yahweh, then they will be part of all those who are set apart by Yahweh. Then the evidence of their faith in Yahweh will be seen in real worship. They will make sacrifices, but not just sacrifices. Sacrifices that are right Righteous sacrifices, he says. This suggests that they had been making sacrifices, but they had not been righteous sacrifices. Righteous sacrifices are sacrifices that Yahweh will accept. In fact, David talks about it in his confession there later on. We'll eventually probably get there to Psalm 51. And in Psalm 51, he talks about this in verse 19 when he says, um, then you will... Delight in righteous sacrifices and burnt offering and whole burnt offerings. Um, then young bulls will be offered on your altar. This is what God wants. Which now brings us to verses 6 through 8, the final verses of this psalm. Yahweh ultimately will provide. David comes now full circle in verses 6 through 8. And we referred earlier in the psalm to this ringed, in a sense, composition. David 
returns to addressing God, only this time he uses the personal covenantal name of Yahweh. Yahweh will provide. Things have radically changed since we studied Psalm 3 in our last message. Back in Psalm 3, David said, My adversaries have become many. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul that there is no salvation for him in the Lord. But now he's remarking, Many are saying, Who will show us good? These same adversaries sound like they have started to change their tune. Instead of being adversaries, this question seems to come from the friends of David, and they presently are discouraged over their circumstances. Is it possible that some of the very enemies of David have eventually come to their senses? So in response to this, David recalls the words of the priest of the tabernacle. You can read them in Numbers 6, verses 24 through 26. Aaron and the priests were to bless the people of Yahweh, saying, Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. Yahweh lift up his face upon you and give you peace. And here David shortens it and says, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Yahweh. This is one of the four Psalms in the Psalter that refers to this specific blessing that goes all the way back to Numbers chapter 6. David turns his blessing here into a prayer. It is a prayer that Yahweh favor be given to them. And then in verse 7, Yahweh will please as well. Verse 7 says, You have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. The verb here is stated in the perfect tense, referring that Yahweh has done perfectly in the past all these things. And it's interesting to note that David here refers deliberately to their grain and wine, not his. This may indicate that David's enemies have resources that he doesn't have. Even though they have the resources like grain and wine, he has something far greater. He has joy that they don't have. Yahweh has given David more gladness than full granaries and overflowing vats of wine. There is a joy that the Lord gives the faithful that the wicked will never know, full bellies and with wine and grain are still the world's, the world's standard for happiness. But with all the food and all the alcohol, there is no equal to the joy of the Lord. No equal to the joy of the Lord. Finally, in verse 8, he says this. He says, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Yahweh, make me to abide in safety. Now, this is in direct contrast to laying down on your bed and contemplating and running these things over in your mind over and over again. It is a rich blessing to lay down and sleep peacefully. Those who have faith in Yahweh will sleep sweetly and peacefully. How is that possible? Because they know, like David, that Yahweh will keep them safe. Their enemies will not overtake them because they abide in safety David's confidence was in the Lord, and this aided his restful sleep. The wicked lie awake at night, contemplating their deeds and plotting their evil. The righteous mind is at peace because the Lord is their protector. When's the last time you had really sweet sleep at peace? 
Let me conclude with this statement by our pastor, John MacArthur. The real challenge of Christian living, he says, is not to eliminate every uncomfortable circumstance from our lives, but to trust our sovereign, wise, good, and powerful God in the midst of every situation. Let's bow for prayer. Gracious Father, that is our goal. That's what we want to do. We want to trust you. We want to trust you because you are sovereign, you are wise, you are good, and you are powerful. Even though the circumstances around us are incredibly distressing, they're uncomfortable, it seems like the walls are closing in, we realize that you're the one ultimately who is in control. Father, as a result of that, then may we have peaceful sleep. Even though there are many accusations falsely being hurled in our direction. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.